Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The View With Me. Boo, if it's the first time you've listened to the podcast or seen this on YouTube, make sure you click down below, subscribe. The more subscribers we get, the more amazing the guests we have on the show, and no one more amazing than our guest coming up now, who's probably living a dream that we're not aware of, that deep down inside, we all wish we were living this reality. Today's guest has turned the 80s into a marketable commodity and is generating a life and an income using the 80s as a metaphor for leadership, for working better together as a team, for inclusion, for workplace culture. And I am absolutely pumped to be sharing his story today. Please make him welcome now, ladies and gentlemen. His uh, name is... Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Chris Clues, thanks so much for being on the show. Tell me, what is it about the 80s that we just all love so much, whether we're Gen Z, Gen Alpha, Millennials, Baby Boomers? What captured our imagination in the 80s? Yeah, Boo, first of all, I want to thank you for having me. I, you know, being on a podcast quite a bit, I know the work that goes into it on the back end for you, the person who's producing it, your podcast. And without guys and gals like you out there, giving people like me a voice, we wouldn't be able to share our stories. So I truly appreciate it. Thanks, man. Yeah. So the eighties, it's really amazing to watch as somebody who's a Gen Xer. And I really, my formative years were the eighties. I was 10 years old in 1980. So 10 to 19, I say that everything I did for the first time in my life, good, bad, or indifferent happened in the eighties. And so it holds something very close to my heart. And I'm so happy to see other generations embracing it as well. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think number one is that 80s pop culture, I explain, I define it kind of, I say it was like a glitter bomb. Somebody took a glitter bomb, threw it against the wall. All these wonderful colors exploded when it came out. And when it exploded, all these wonderful colors came out. And that was 80s pop culture. The innovation, the invention, the diversity in the pop culture, particularly in the music. We think about some of the things that we have today. They really came out of the 80s. You know, hip hop, for example, there was a little bit of dabbling in it in the late seventies, but it really exploded in the eighties. I mean, for MTV was an eighties yeah. child, was it? MTV yeah. and video killed the radio star being the first song yeah. by the buggles. And I also think what's really interesting about eighties, about the eighties in general is that when you think, let's take video killed the radio star, for example, there was a guy in that video, I believe playing the keyboards who was 21 years old at the time for the buggles. And his name was Hans Zimmer. And Hans Zimmer went on to be an, an Academy Award winning composer for movies like Gladiator and others. Yeah. We go back wow. to the 80s and we see these really interesting stories inside of the stories. And I, I don't know that any other decade has been able to pull that off. Now, obviously, your uh, background there is in a video store. For some of the listeners, I even know what one of those is. What was it about the 80s that we no longer see today? Like, what, what were some of the trends and elements that have kind of were disrupted that were amazing in the 80s. I mean, you remember the 80s was, that was really when private equity and and money started to become a thing, right? Greed is good, Wall Street. <laughs> yes. 
you know, a lot of those businesses and a lot of the individuals that were spruiking that last, I mean, a lot of them imploded as well, right? It was a lot of largesse in the 80s. So what is it about the 80s that we haven't carried forward? And that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of largesse, but I will say because of that largesse, we have things like the personal computer that, you know, when you, when you go back even 10 years before the 80s, mainframe computers were massive. And then suddenly within less than 15 years, we had a computer in our house, a Commodore 64, a VIC-20, these TRS-80, the ones that started the whole thing. So there was good and bad in that largesse, of course, in the innovation. But let's talk about where I'm standing in a blockbuster. And one of the things that I think convenience at our fingertips, on our phones, on our computers, having everything we need right here. It's really awesome. And I think it obviously makes our life a lot easier. And for people who may not have the ability to be able to get out and about, technology and the convenience of technology has really changed the world in a positive way for so many people. There is also this thing about the 80s, and I'm romantic for it in a sense, of not having everything at your fingertips. And video stores, Blockbuster, and I'm standing in right now is a great example. You went there on a Friday night, not knowing if the movie you wanted was going to be there. And then having to wait by the return bin to see if maybe somebody was going to return. <laughs> yeah. Or give them a call before you came. Is, is it back Is yet? it there? Is it Can you yet? hold it for me? You know, and, yeah. and six copies of Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so, but here's the other cool thing about that. We talked today about algorithms, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and other streaming channels that are telling us, you watch this, you might like this. I would argue that the algorithm within the Blockbuster employee was a better algorithm than what you get on Netflix or on, on Amazon Prime. If the movie I wanted wasn't in, I'm like, I'm looking for XYZ. And that Blockbuster employee said, well, it's not in, but listen, let me take you to five movies over here that I think you'll really enjoy if you like that one. And they were usually right. I think you're right. You know, as a fighter pilot and I was a teenager during the 80s, it was the era where analog kind of went digital. That was sort of a benchmark of the 80s and, and everything became kind of like technology became something all of a sudden, but it wasn't overwhelming. And that the video store as a kid, you know, that was family time. You know, that was, you would not only go down to the video, you'd get Chinese takeaway or pizza. It would be a whole event, right? And you would have the adult section and the kids section, not the adults, adult section, but the grownups where- Well, you had the adult section too, with those swinging doors in the back. Saloon doors. The saloon doors. <laughs> you know, so mum and dad would get a video and the, the kids would get their video, but everyone would kind of watch it. And it was a way of, bonding, right? It was the conversations you had in the car. It was the conversations in the video store around what's available, what sort of theme do we want to have? And then, you know, or, or you'd throw one of the neighbor's kids in, you know, and it'd be a whole new adventure. I feel like today we've lost all of those, I guess you might call it incidental social engagements and incidental conversations because we just don't wait. And I feel like technology in the 80s made life easy, but didn't make it overwhelming. So I presume where you're coming from in you're speaking and working with organizations. You're trying to capture some of those elements of the 80s that have lost and maybe are worth reinvesting in today. Yeah, what I look at is, and again, going back to the 80s, and I think another thing that there's people have an affinity for the 80s, and in particular, people that didn't grow up there is when they're rediscovering or discovering these movies, particularly through shows like Stranger Things and Cobra Kai, where some younger generations are being well, if they didn't already know about the 80s, maybe from their parents or an older sibling, they're learning through these shows. And then they're going back and they're discovering these movies. And I think what they're realizing is there are some pretty great stories and really great dialogue. And not to say that there isn't great stories and dialogue today, but there was no other option back then. We had to talk to each other. And I say that, you know, today, you know, a kid who's, let's say somebody who's 18, who's gotten into Stranger Things and now 
they hear the song Pretty in Pink. I'll use Pretty in Pink as an example. Great song by the Psychedelic Furs. Also happened to be a movie that was written and directed by John Hughes, who was, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Weird Science, 16 wow. Candles, Plain Trains, Automobiles, Breakfast Club, Home Alone. I could just go on and on. Wow. But Pretty in Pink, let's use that as an example real quick to your point about this idea of conversation and, and events. So they go down this rabbit hole and they look up, they Google Pretty in Pink and suddenly it's like, oh, Pretty in Pink, this song? And this song was a movie and this movie was done by this guy, John Hughes, who did all of these movies as well. And they can discover this catalog of 80s pop culture quickly, really fast. For us, when I was 14 or 13 and I thought, what's that Led Zeppelin patch on that guy's jean jacket? I had to go ask <laughs> him and he's sitting on his Camaro smoking a cigarette. And I'm like, this either he's going to be really nice and tell me he's going to kick my ass. Like. These were the only options that were available and I wasn't going to go ask my parents. So I think that's another reason that the eighties is continuing to be very prominent and prevalent in our pop culture today, because it's so easily accessible to uh, younger generations. Yeah, it was, you're right. You'd be at school and everyone in your group would be talking about a new song or a new band. You had no idea what was going on and you're just nodding your head and agreeing as we do, as we conform to what is societal norms as a teenager. And that, that evening you catch the train, you're waiting for the bus, you're at a shopping mall and you're, you're into insanity or a record label music store and you're flipping through CDs and you find it. And, and then you've got to go and get a job to save up, to spend $14 to buy the CD, to listen to the music, or it might be on the radio and you're hitting your play record to record it off the radio. To make a mixtape. Yeah, you know, and, and everyone would be listening to the Billboard Top 40, you know, because that was the only time you really got to... So all of these, I guess, ceremonies and, and events, you only had the top 40 on a Sunday night, right? That was when it was. And that's what you spoke about on Monday. It's almost the amount of information we consumed was consumable and it created this natural flow in life as opposed to you know, what I, I believe, I'd love to get your opinion, that it's just a cataclysm of just noise now. And it's just, you know, I don't remember people being as stressed, as tired, yeah, you know, maybe because I was a teenager, or as harried as we are today. Yeah, for sure. And again, you had mentioned in your last question about tying this back from my keynote speaking that I do to organizations and how this whole thing works. And it all goes back to, again, communication and the idea that we really, we had to talk to each other. There was no other option. I mean, there were obviously introverts and extroverts, just like there has always been. But if we wanted to get some information aside from the Encyclopedia Britannica's that were only updated once a year, we had to actually engage with people. And a lot of my lessons from these 80s movies come from that because the stories and the character development, the dialogue, I always talk about the 80s as well, why it continues to resonate. And I think part of it is because it stands alone in terms of the pop culture, in my opinion. Now, I may be a little biased, but I look at the 80s and I say it was the last decade where pop culture wasn't manufactured. And what I mean by that is there were investments going into pop culture, but not the investments we began to see in the 90s. The amount of money that was going into a pop singer or into a movie before it was even released. And they said, we got to make our money back somehow, some way on this thing. And so they did everything they could to get it in front of us over and over and over again. Where in the 80s, it was kind of like they'd throw stuff out there and they'd say, do you like this? And we'd say, yeah, we like it. And they would make more of it. And I think that's really, again, when we talk about 80s pop culture, and it's where a lot of my lessons come from, these great characters in these movies that I'm not sure exist in the same way that they did uh, back in the 80s today. So Chris, your background is marketing. That's your trade, right? That's your qualification. You spent a lot of time in that. 
and then went through a big life readjustment and popped out the other end, blending 80s and marketing together. What is it about the 80s that makes the storytelling so compelling as a vehicle for helping people learn about marketing? Yeah, I think, again, going back to the stories that were told in the character development, and we can talk about workplace culture, marketing, leadership. I'll tell you kind of, if it's cool with you, I'll tell you a little bit of my origin story and how I got here. Yeah, that's what it's all about. You know, everyone wants to know how on earth do you get to a life where you are like an 80s legend and that's actually financially viable. So please share that backstory. It's scary, but you've got to take risks just like anything else when it comes to entrepreneurship, particularly solo entrepreneurship. But I was in marketing for about... 20 plus years. And I still have a passion for marketing. I really enjoy it. But I felt like there was something else out there for me. And I was kind of having like that self-pity party of one. If you've ever been there, you know, you, I was kind of in a job that wasn't working out for me. I'm sitting on my couch having a self-pity party of one and the breakfast club came on. And John Bender, now I knew every piece of dialogue in the breakfast club and I had heard this quote, but I never really listened to it. And it was when John Bender, the criminal says, screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. And I kind of sat up and I said, my screws have fallen out. I'm in an imperfect place. What am I going to do to fix it? Am I going to take those screws, those proverbial screws, and just put them right back in the same way and keep going down this, as Henry David Thoreau said, this life of quiet desperation? Or am I going to find a whole new set of screws and a whole new doorframe and walk out to a new journey? And I decided that was what I was going to do. I just didn't know how to do it. I wrote an article on what the Breakfast Club taught us about problem solving. And I put it on LinkedIn and I woke up the next day and people from all over the world had responded to it. And I thought, wow, this is actually really cool. Maybe I have something here that people want to hear. And so there was another movie called The Outsiders. And it was a book as well, written by S.E. Hinton in 1967 when she was 16 years old. Yeah, I mean, 16 years old, she wrote it in 1967. I was trying to perfect the perfect spitball and she was writing the great American novel. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, everybody has their place. It came out as a movie in 1983. And there was a character, Johnny Cade, played by Ralph Macchio. And he said, you still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. And that really resonated with me so much so that I put that on my arm as a tattoo. It's kind of hard to see. There you go. You still have a lot of time nice. to make yourself be what you want. That's how much it means to me. And so I was, you know, 46, 47 years old, not a young entrepreneur. And I said, I do still have a lot of time to make myself be what I want. And I decided while I had a full-time job that was, you know, taking me around the world doing marketing at night, on weekends, holidays, I was trying to figure out how to do this. And I, I built a website, positioned myself as a speaker, wrote my first book, which was just this little 60 page book on lessons from 80s pop culture. And now I stand in front of you today. With Were you always a student of the 80s before the epiphany? Or was it something that all came together in one hit? I always loved the 80s. My friends always said like, you know, I, I was always using 80s movie quotes when we would talk in conversations. And so there was definitely something there for me, but to turn it into something I could do for a living, I never would have thought until I had this idea and I just decided to chase it. And so now it's, you Do know, you think that's because you, you had a marketing background and you've seen so many random stories and random brands and ideas actually turned into a commercial product and realized, you know what, if you can turn that into something marketable that people pay money for, I'm sure I can turn this deep well of knowledge and passion for the 80s. Surely the marketing background must have given you kind of some framework in which to deploy this commercially. It definitely helped in terms of branding and how to position myself and the content. I will say though that, you know, as I said before, you're like, you're always taking a risk, no matter how much you think you know, there's never a guarantee that whatever you create, people are going to like enough to buy it, enough to be interested in it, enough to want to consume it. You may think you have something great and you might, but the market may not be ready for it, or people just may not think it's something they're interested in. So you're taking a huge risk, no matter how 
well you know the business world or the marketing world there's still no guarantee that people are going to dig what you're you know you're throwing out there and you just have to keep doing it i talked about henry david thoreau oliver wendell holmes said something to the effect of you know one of the saddest things in life is to see someone die with their song still inside of them and so there were these quotes like that that really pushed me out there because i really felt strongly like i have this song inside of me and if i don't get it out like when am i going to do it i mean i've got this opportunity i got this shot i'm going to go for it what is that moment like? Because it's a fairly well-trodden path and people talk about, and some do this successfully and some don't, right? As you would know, as you get to that point in life where you've been in a corporate role, you're successful, you're comfortable, and for some reason you just throw away the safety line and you just lean in. What is different about you that made it, this transition succeed as opposed to someone else who buys a delicatessen, gets a cafe, decides they love food, want to be a chef, and three years later, they're back in their day job and you know far poorer for the experience. Because no one really talks about those stories. We only hear the stories that go well, and they're, not, they're far less than the other stories. So what's the difference? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of mitigating factors or outside factors on whether something is going to be successful or not, it's not always, and usually not always the person themselves, because like you said, a lot of people go into what they love. If they're gonna go become an entrepreneur, it's typically something they really love and they have a passion for, and they're probably pretty good at. But I actually took some time for about 18 months while I had my other job, and I really did my due diligence. I did my research. I said, what do I need from a runway perspective to really be able to make, try to make this happen? What is it that I need from you know a financial perspective to try to make it happen? What am I willing to sacrifice? As one of my friends said, I know you can do this because I know you can caveman it. And what he meant was, you know, just focusing on the things you need, not the things you want. And that's difficult to do as you go on in life and you've had these great jobs and you've been able to take these trips and do all these things. And suddenly you're saying, you know what? I'm not going to be able to do those things for a while if I really want to pursue this and chase it. It takes a lot of discipline, not just from yourself when it comes to the work, but it takes a lot of discipline as well to say, I'm willing to give up a lot of these things that I had to be able to chase this. And that's not easy to do. And I just said to myself, I understand what I need to do. And I'm going to actually go try to do this. And so you need to take some risks. There was a movie called Better Off Dead. It's a classic dark comedy from the 80s. I highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. Starring John Cusack, amongst others. And he's at the top of this mountain called the K-12. And he's getting ready to ski down it. He's never done it before. It's very dangerous. And his friend Charles DeMar says, gives him some advice. And he says, go that way really fast. If something gets in your way, turn. And I think that's sometimes, you know, once you decide to take that leap of faith, you kind of have to do that. Just go really fast. If something gets in your way, turn. And there's no guarantees, but that was the approach that I took. What happened to John Cusack? He was one of my favorite actors. He pops up every now and again, but he must have decided what? He just gave the Hollywood rush away and just felt like you know, being a dad. But he was such a great actor. I mean, he, you know, when you go back to the 80s and you think about Say Anything, which has some great lessons in it as well about creativity, innovation, and of course, his dare to be great moment that he had. And I talk about that as well, that there's a moment where you have to say, am I going to dare to be great? No guarantee, but am I going to dare to be great? And that's when he's obviously, you know, holding up the boombox over his head and going for it, right? But yeah, he had some great roles in the 80s and even into the 90s and High Fidelity, which is not an 80s movie, but a phenomenal yeah, 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 great movie. movie. So yeah. But I, you know what, to me, you just said something there that it's so true about the movie making that actually has a story, a bit like a fable. Aesop's fables, it builds up the storyline and the, oh, the grasshopper in the end, I need to be patient. 
That's the moral of the story. And I feel like the 80s had a lot of that. And you approach life as a romantic. And I feel like the 80s was good at that also. Like there was always a, there was always like a, oh, like a heartstring or a man that's just so meaningful. <laughs> if you look at the world now, you look at great resignation, quiet quitting, disengagement, search for meaning. It's like everything's so accessible. So we have everything, but none of it means anything. Hi, oh, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. That's a great point. And I'm a huge fan of Adam Sandler. And again, even though his movies weren't in the 80s, they're exactly what you were talking about. And why? Because he was a product of the 80s. So when you watch yeah. his movies, as silly as some of them can be, what did they always have? A heart. There was always something good that came out of it. No matter how silly and ridiculous it might have been throughout the movie, you always knew that there was going to be something good at the end. In 80s movies, you know, we say, well, we kind of knew what the ending was going to be. Is that always bad? I mean, I know it's okay to be snarky. It's okay to be cynical. I think these are good, you know, good things, especially cynical. It's not, it's not a bad thing to be cynical. But we do long for those stories where the person that we want to win, the person that we feel like should actually, you know, get what they want at the end actually gets it. And sometimes they have to go through trials and tribulations as we should to get to that point. I'll give you an example. You know, I talk a lot about leadership. And there's a movie called Coming to America, which uh, in my mind is the perfect romantic comedy. People talk about it being the perfect comedy, which it is, but it's a romantic comedy and a really, really good one. And it's Eddie Murphy at his absolute best, just in his prime. And I hopefully don't have, need to tell the plot to everybody here, but you know he's a prince in the country of Zamunda and he is going to be the king and he doesn't have to do anything for that. He was just born into this family. And because he was born into this family with this name, He's going to get everything he's ever wanted. And he's willing to throw that all away because we see at the beginning of the movie, he doesn't want people to treat him any differently, but he knows that everybody knows him there. So he's got to go somewhere else. And he goes to Queens, New York to find his queen. And uh, he strips everything away that would make him a prince. He's, he gives it all up. He takes an entry-level job at a fast food restaurant called McDowell's, you know, <laughs> McDonald's McDowell's. And he, he has this throwaway line, all the great dialogue in Coming to America he has this throwaway line. And he says, at one point he's talking to the, who is going to be his, uh, his love interest. And he says, when you think of garbage, think of Akeem. Because he has this entry-level job sweeping the floors and taking out the garbage. When you think of garbage, think of Akeem. And that resonated with me because here's this guy who is the prince in his country of Zamunda. And he's so happy to have this entry-level job sweeping the floors and taking out the garbage. And what he teaches us there, it teaches the difference between unearned leadership and earned leadership. That unearned leadership creates pleasers. And earned leadership creates believers. And it's a really significant lesson that we get out of the movie Coming to America in that when we saw him with his unearned leadership at the beginning, just because he was the prince, everybody wanted to please him. Yes, people. And when he earns that leadership position, he has credibility now. And that's important in the workplace. The people will follow you, particularly in the military. You have that credibility. You're asking people to do things that in some instances they may risk their lives for. You'd think you'd want a little bit of credibility there. You'd think you'd want those people to be able to see that you'd earn that position versus just being placed there. And the difference that that makes in a military workplace or just a workplace in general when it comes to employee retention and being able to see that there may be an opportunity for me as well. And I think, you know, the problem there is that there's so many poor leadership role models in the public domain that we're starting to think that that's how life should be. And this convenience culture where 
you don't really have to work for much. It's just there. It was only a few centuries ago, we would, you would be 14 years old working in a coal mine with your seven brothers and sisters to be able to put enough scraps on the table for the family to eat and share a bed. I just, before we go on there, I want to go back a couple of steps because you said something that you glazed over, but I think is actually incredibly important to underpin your success here. And you said when you had the idea, you spent 18 months working on it and still having a job. And I think that there is the difference between success in a transition or a life change or evolution and failure. Because I did the same thing. I had to leave. I was medically discharged from the Air Force, but I spent a good solid 12 months still getting paid in my day job while I was creating and researching. So by the time I actually left, I had something to step into. That to me, I think, is one of the keys to success. But also during that period, you're effectively doing two jobs, right? You're doing your day job and you still got to do a good job. You can't just flitter in and flitter out. So you're still committed to that. And then at nighttime, you're doing your passion job. So how did you find balance there? And if we look at everyone now about work-life balance, you know, probably very unrealistic. It's more about work-life integration. During those 18 months, what did life look like to you? I look back now and I can't believe I did what I did. I think, again, I go back to the sacrifices that you have to be willing to make. And those sacrifices include letting your friends know, hey, listen, all the things that I've been doing with all of you together and getting together, I may not be able to do those things for a while. I'll be able to do them again. And if they're true friendships, they understand and they're going to encourage you and say, this is awesome. And that's what I had. I had people who were encouraging me saying, go for it. They understood. If you don't have discipline, it's going to be very difficult. You have to be able to say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so for this short time frame. I've got to make a lot of sacrifices in my personal life. And I'm somebody who likes to be around people. I like to have fun. And I had to give those things up. Now, having said that, Ferris Bueller said one of my other favorite quotes, which is probably going to end up on my other arm here at some point. And it's, uh, <laughs> life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. Just as much as I say that it's important to focus and be disciplined during that time frame, you do have to take some time to stop and look around. You can't get to the point where you say, I'm ready to go, but now I'm burned out. So it's important to say, like, I've got to stop and look around. I've got to stop and do some things for myself. And I definitely did that. And I do that when I write books as well. You've got to recognize when you have to take a step back and disconnect from it. It doesn't mean maybe I'll just dabble a little bit. Take a week and say, it's not going to be in my head this week. I've got to disconnect from this while I'm building it because then you're going to come back stronger and more productive. And so although it is a grind, you have to remember life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you can miss it. It goes back to what you were saying before around effort, earned leadership, earning what you have and how much better that feels rather than just be given something. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. The difference between buying the thing and doing the thing is something I talk about as well from the movie Can't Buy Me Love. 1987, just a classic with Patrick Dempsey. And I always tell people, if you're not sure you can be who you want to be, all you have to do is look at Patrick Dempsey as the nerd riding the lawnmower to make money to buy a telescope in the Can't Buy Me Love movie in 1987, who then became Dr. McDreamy in Grey's Anatomy. So anything's possible, okay? Anything is possible. But I talk about that, doing a thing versus buying a thing. And I say to people, I ask, I do an exercise. I say, think about when you were 15, 16, 17, something that you bought that you thought was just the end of the world for you. This was the greatest thing ever. And I say, do you have that thing that you're thinking about? It could have been you know, a used car, it could have been, for me, it was a mountain bike. Now I want you to think about something that you did. And that could be a trip. It could be something that you did with 
a child, if you have a child, the first thing that you did when they were old enough to kind of appreciate and get that memory, maybe it was you know, taking your son fishing or whatever, you know? So I say, just think about that. Now I want you to give me the details of the thing you did versus the thing you bought. And when you listen to people talk about the thing they bought and how much it meant to them at the time, because it did, that mountain bike meant the world to me. I can tell you what color it was. I can tell you, you know, mainly what it looked like and some places that it took me, but for the most part, that's about it. But when you ask somebody, tell me about something that you did, and then suddenly they can talk for an hour about that thing that they did. And it's such a huge difference in our lives that what you bought versus what you do. All right, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot. We're going to play a game. All right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to find a movie quote. Yeah. And I want to see whether you remember the movie. And obviously, if you don't, you don't. But what's the lesson in life that we (laughs) we get from it? Okay, good. This is on the spot. Okay, good. Yeah. (laughs) If you build it, he will come. Yeah. So that's Field of Dreams. And I have some great lessons in Field of Dreams. And I actually didn't use that quote, to be honest, because it it was like so out there. I used a quote where he said, I just built something totally illogical when he's standing in front of the baseball diamond and he's raised all the cornfield that, you know, makes the money for his family. And his wife, Annie says, you know, it's a beautiful baseball diamond. And so I talk about how, you know, it's important for us to have illogical people doing illogical things. That's where innovation comes from. Uh, We need roads and bridges from engineers, you know, the kind of like basic logical stuff, but we only progress as a society with the people who are a little illogical. Yeah, I see that. I can see it's one of the things that often I get people say when they're entrepreneurial, right? And they're trying to raise money and they can't. And you hear them say, hey, look, look, if we just build it, they will come. It's a movie quote that seems to have stuck and made its way into describing the risks that you take personally to achieve a great thing. This one's an easy one. Wax on, wax off. Okay. So wax on, wax off. Yeah. The Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, my favorite character from the 80s. Every piece of dialogue is a lesson. And he says wax on, wax off. But he also, when he's painting the fence there, you know, and he says, don't forget to breathe. Very important. And this is a really important lesson because it's not actually the actual physical act of breathing, which thankfully we do involuntarily or I'd be in trouble. It's actually about taking time to step back and breathe. And this idea that I talk about, if you've ever had dehydration, the physical act of dehydration, it's really bad if you've ever had it. And I say stress is like dehydration. By the time you realize you have it, it's too late. And that's a real thing. You know, we walk around stressed. You were mentioning earlier, like all the things that are going on, how harried and hurried we are. We walk around, we don't even realize how stressed we are. And so when it shows itself and we haven't recognized that it can come in really bad form. So I say, make sure, don't forget to breathe. Very important. That could be playing with your dog, your kids, your cat, having a cup of coffee, going for a walk, working out, take that time to breathe and leaders, let your team members know that they have that time to breathe and breathe yourself because we talk about how shit rolls downhill. Well, stress rolls downhill as well. And it takes out a lot more people when it does. So don't forget to breathe. Very important. All right. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Dirty dancing. Glad you brought that up. Patrick Swayze is my favorite actor from the eighties. My rescue pit bull is named Bodie after his character in point break. So I'm a huge Patrick Swayze fan. Never saw dirty dancing. You've never seen it. No, I actually put baby in the corner and I left her there. So (laughs) (laughs) now I can't see it because it's part of my shtick and people get really upset when I'm at a conference and I say, there's a movie I haven't seen. And I say, Dirty Dance. What? They start, st- it's like, they might as well put me in a stockade and throw rotten fruit and vegetables at me. I never saw it. <laughs> my theme for my prom, my senior prom was now I had the time of my life from Dirty Dancing. And I had to hear that song like 150 times that night. It was on the on all the favors. I have night terrors about that song. So and I just, now it's your thing. I can't do it. Now it's my thing. Yeah. 
final one, be excellent to each other. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, really, really awesome movie. In fact, my third book, my most recent book, ends not with that lesson, but just with that line about how it's so important for all of us to just be excellent to each other. And it's a, a really, really fun movie. And I'm a huge Keanu Reeves fan as well, not just as an actor, but as a human being. He's like an astonishing role model, isn't he? I mean, there's a guy there that has absolute humility. You know, he's had his dark patches. He's, he's suffered terrible loss. But, you know, you'll just see him on social media as hanging out with a mate on a bike out in the middle of the desert somewhere, just being a dude or helping people, helping homeless people, giving, you know, always giving. It's almost like, I don't know, I wonder if he, because he, he filmed The Matrix, he can kind of see that we all have a role within the, <laughs> within the matrix of society. So, you know, you're also an animal advocate as well, aren't you, Chris? I mean, how big a part does that play in your life? And when you look at your journey to success, living life on your terms and doing the things you want to do, that was a big part of your stability and health as well, right? It was for sure. And I appreciate you bringing that up. And before we jump into that, I just want to do what you did earlier and go back to one thing that you mentioned about Keanu Reeves and humility, because that's really important. Humble leadership. We're really missing that more so than ever, I think today. And so there's a movie called Trading Places, fantastic comedy with some great social commentary, some important social commentary with Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy's character, Billy Ray Valentine, is given this job at a financial institution. And I won't go into the whole plot because it'll take too long. But at one point he says to Coleman the butler, what if I can't do this job? What if I'm not what they expected? And it's his first day. And Coleman the butler says, just be yourself, sir. They can't take that away from you. Now, when we think about this particular scene and in the movie and how we all know he's very smart, Billy Ray, he doesn't recognize how smart he is, though. It's that imposter syndrome that we talk about today. And I say that confident people question themselves and arrogant people question others. And this is just to go back to the humility that you were talking about. If you are questioning yourself, it is not a weakness. It's a strength. That's how we get better. Because once you stop questioning yourself, if something goes wrong, what are you going to do? You're going to point to this person or that person. Can't possibly be my fault. I'm absolutely perfect. And I can assure you that if you went to the greatest athletes in the world or the greatest business people in the world and you had them one-on-one -on -one behind closed doors, they would tell you the same thing, that every time they're about to make a decision, every time they're about to throw a ball, every time they're about to shoot the basketball, hit the baseball, they are questioning themselves always. And that's how they get better. That's how they become the best. And so I just wanted to bring that up real quickly on the Keanu Reeves front. No, I love that. It's very much a philosophy that I've been lucky enough to be introduced to as a fighter pilot and lived in life. And, I, and you see people who embrace that curiosity. And you know, people say, oh, you, you're hard on yourself. Just watching recently Lando Norris after he lost out to the sprint and Oscar Piastre, his younger teammate, who beat him and, he, and it should have never happened. Lando should have got the first win for McLaren. And he was hard on himself about it, how he stuffed up and how he made mistakes and he's an idiot. And then the press came out saying he's too hard on himself and, you know, he's got to be careful, you know, but when you look at the guy and how happy he is and how engaged he is and, and the fact that he is one of the few Formula One drivers that runs this, that narrative in public around what I, you know, I made mistakes, I can do better. I personally thought it was great to see. I mean, that is a young man who's embracing it. He jumped, came out the following week and did exceptionally well, almost won the next Grand Prix. So clearly not a narrative that's negative and creating mental health issues. But it's what I thought was interesting was how quickly the mainstream media latched on to someone saying something negative about themselves. And it's almost like we've lost that skill set. It's like this positive psychology movement has just gone into completely uncharted territory with nothing's your fault. You've always got to be positive. Just keep going. 
you know, don't look back. And really looking back is where the gold is because that's the stuff that's happened. Looking forward is it doesn't exist yet. Yeah, you're right. It's always important. You know, when I talk about the screws fall out all the time, the world's an imperfect place. I talk about that and I talk about how it's important to, we definitely want to understand the past and ourselves, but then we were living in the present and the future. And that's, you know, what, that's what those new screws represent. So yeah, I mean, the how, yeah, you know, I talk about like the why the screws fell out is important. That's the past, but it's how you put them back in that really matters because that's going to be your present and your future. So. And that's the critical piece there. It's the why, not lamenting over the event over and over and yeah, over right. again, not living in that previous moment. Let's get back to the dogs and to the animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I am a huge animal rescue advocate. We talked about this a little bit before, and I mentioned Bodie, my pit bull rescue that's now almost three and a half years old. And I use the movie Dead Poet Society to talk about animal rescue and just advocacy in general. And so, you know, Robin Williams played John Keating. We all know Robin Williams for the laughs that he gave us, but man, was he a great dramatic actor as well. And he played John Keating, who was a teacher in an elite boarding school. And all these kids in the late fifties have been taught, you're going to be exactly who the family says, doctor, attorney, whatever. And Keating says, nonsense, boys, you can be whoever you want to be. And he teaches them through poetry. And so we all, most people know Carpe Diem sees the day. What a fantastic scene that is from Dead Poet Society. But there's a bigger thing that he says. He says, no matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. And he says that to the boys. And I believe that in the palm of our hand today, we have the great equalizer. That phone allows you to get your words and ideas out to the world. You don't have to be a politician, a world leader, a celebrity, an athlete. You can get your words and ideas out there in an instant. In the 80s, if I wanted my words and ideas out to the world, my Community Times newspaper in my little town, I could write an article and maybe 30 people would read it, and that was about it. So, But that that's talking the talk. You also have to walk the walk. What action are you going to take to advocate for the thing that's important to you? And for me, it's animal rescue. It's very important to me. And Bodhi came into my life at a really crucial time, uh, August of 2020. He was found on the street by a couple of cops in Miami, laying on the sidewalk, couldn't walk, couldn't go to the bathroom. He was dead. And Wonder Paul's rescue stepped in to help him. About a month later, he was walking for the first time. I saw this video of him getting up and falling down and still wagging his tail to your point of like, you know, perseverance, getting up, falling down, getting up, falling down until he was up. And I got him at six months old after all these things that he had been through. I looked at him the first day and I said, I'm going to give you the best life ever. And he gave me this look like, you don't know how much you're going to need me soon. And in March of 2021, just seven months later, my girlfriend at the time who was living with me, she left. I knew she had a journey that she needed to take. She had lost a daughter a few years before we met. There were still some things that she needed to do for her. So I understood she had this journey she needed to take. I was completely supportive of it. It was tough for me. But one of the things that I've learned is you cannot get in the way of somebody else's journey. You have to let people live the life that they're meant to live. And so I stepped back. That's very evolved though, Chris. I mean, so many people are unable to get to that point in this country. I mean, you look at the rates of domestic violence, you look at these, all of these indicators of control. I mean, does, is that how you've always felt or is that something that you grew into? No, it's really how I've always been, but I'd never been faced with this much of a challenge when it came to someone else's journey and how it impacted a journey that I thought was going to be, you know, in some ways thought it was going to be together, but I, I was eyes wide open going in. And so the time had come and March of 2021, she gets an RV, she takes off cross country and she leaves. So it was very difficult for me. Three weeks later, my stepmom, who had been in my life for 40 years, not like, you know, a recent stepmom, 40 years, she got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she was gone in three weeks. And then two months later, my mom died of, uh, from Alzheimer's and dementia. 
So my life was like a country song, as I say. But through it all, I had Bodie by my which, side. Which country song? You pick one. I'm sure they all have some <laughs> of that in there somewhere, you know? So <laughs> Whiskey, love, and a dog. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and a, just... And a, and a truck. Yeah, and, and a, a truck. truck. Yeah, just, you know, going through challenges and just so much of, of country music is about losing everything but having something by your side, whether it's a person or a truck yeah. or a dog. And I had Bodie next to me. He took me through this entire thing. And so I say that, you know, rescued is the best breed. We have so many people out there that spend thousands of dollars thinking they're getting the best dog ever because look, I spent five grand on my dog. There are thousands of dogs in shelters right now that need homes. And a lot of them are being euthanized because there's too many of them in these shelters. And a lot of them happen to be bully breeds and pits, which are near and dear to my heart. And so I just ask people, look, just please, you know, if you're looking for a dog, just give a shelter dog a chance. Trust me when I tell you Rescued is the best breed. And I donate a portion of the proceeds from my book sales and speaking gigs to Wonder Paul's Rescue, which is a rescue that saved Bodie. We have a rescue staffy here, and it's the second rescue dog that we've had. And you're, no, no animal loves you more than a rescue dog. It's like they understand what they dodged a bullet, right? It's the, you know, if you look at the universe and the energy we distribute and we take on board it's like they have this energy that cavoodle that's been pampered from the day it was born doesn't quite have so it's a great story hey chris look i could keep talking to you for hours mate it's been fantastic i really appreciate it if you had one thing that you would send back in time in your back to the future delorean what would you take back to accelerate your journey oh to accelerate my journey to where i am today wow you're only allowed one thing in your backpack there's only room for one and Doc's running because the lightning's about to hit. What is the one thing that I would take back? I mean, I'd have to say like, it's kind of like broad, but I'd say the life experience that I have, I would put into my backpack and walk and go back and be able to look at that and use it because we all make mistakes along the way. We all sometimes take too long to find the thing that we're looking for. I know it took me a while to find it and I would just pack my life experience in a backpack and take it back with me. Uh, that's awesome. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for sharing so much of your life, but also how we can all go and watch The Breakfast Club again and take something away from it a little bit more powerful than maybe the first time. If you're looking to find Chris, it's chrisclues.com. That's C-L-E-W-S and Chris spelt the old-fashioned way. But don't worry, if you missed that, just scroll down into the show notes and you'll see uh, all Chris's links. You'll be able to reach out to him directly. And again, Chris, mate, you've just been very generous with your time. I thank you again for being on the team. Thanks for having me, Boo. I really appreciate it. And stay rad, everybody. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners, without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.